millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Great to have your company. I'm Justin Gregory. Today we meet a dairy farmer from Germany who's joined the farmer protests in Europe. We head to the Coromandel to meet a musician with a side hustle in farming. And later on in our feature, Cosmo meets a viticulturalist whose ancestors landed close to the land he grows grapes on. But first, let's get to the latest news from our rural reporter, Sally Murphy. And Sally, there was a big focus on the East Coast this week. Yes, there was, because this week marked a year since Cyclone Gabrielle tore through, causing widespread damage to farms and orchards. A year. How are people getting on now? Well, devastated but not defeated is how one wine grower is describing the situation. Last February, metres of flood water ran through Linden Estate in the hard-hit Esk Valley. Silk covered six hectares of grapevines and tore through its salad door. Business manager Olivia Walding Karaitiana says the damage was horrific, but things look a lot different now. Those other six um, hectares worth, we were able to dig up by hand each of the vines and we were able to save all of those. So at the moment I'm looking out to what a year ago I would have looked out and it would have just been completely covered in silt and now I'm looking at green, luscious Penetage and Syrah. So it was a very, very hard job, but we we dug all of these vines out by hand and they're basically all operational again for a, a great 2024 harvest. Miss Walding Karaitiana says they rebranded 27,000 bottles of wine that were damaged in the cellar to Survivor Wine, the last bottle of which they sold this week. She says business is going well now with lots of support from locals and international tourists stopping in this summer. So there's a sense of healing a year on, yeah? There is, for some. Yes, Max Tweedy, who farms sheep and beef on Kokopuru Station near Tutera, says the scars left on the land from Cyclone Gabrielle are starting to heal. The farm was battered by the cyclone, cut off by road, the power went out and enormous slips took out fences and water systems. Mr Tweedy says a huge amount of work has gone into restoring the pasture over the last year. Hawke's Bay is, is healing. Um, the country, especially in our district, looks a lot better. You know, the the uh, the tails of the slip of grass and, and pasture and look, um, that's happened a lot. That's been natural, so that's, that's better than it was anyway. Mr Tweedy says it will take about five years to get back up and running like they were before the cyclone because they can only fund a certain amount of repairs at a time. Yeah, funding repairs must be a a big burden. It is because not everything on farm is covered by insurance, but Te Tairawhiti farmer and Federated Farmers board member Toby Williams says farmers need to remember the recovery is a marathon, not a sprint. Farmers are making a start, you know, and 
the way we look at it, and after we said after the storm, it's really we're looking at a marathon. It's just, this isn't a hundred meter sprint where you're going to be in and out. You're finished, you know, in, in five minutes. It's going to take for, for most farmers it'll be three or four years, and for some farmers it'll be up to a decade before they're back to where they were pre-storms. Mr Williams says if signals that interest rates will rise again eventuate, it would be detrimental for the region. It's pretty fragile, you know. I think you know, talking to it doesn't matter who, who we talked to, cropping guys last night, and they, you know everyone's sort of teetering. You know, ANZ, I think, came out last week talking about maybe potentially two more rate increases this year. The last thing we need is interest rates climbing higher. Interest payments on for farmers and for the primary sector are, are crippling at the moment, especially with low pricing. So we're finding some people will probably get through to, towards the end of this financial year and decide it's not worth carrying on farming and, and sell up, we think. So are insurance claims being settled? They are. Rural insurer FMG has paid out more than $260 million in claims. That's for Cyclone Gabriel and the Auckland anniversary weekend floods. It got nearly 12,000 claims for the two events and has settled more than 90% of them. There were 2,700 claims for residential dwellings, nearly 2,300 claims for farm buildings and 632 claims for fencing. Well, it's good to hear things are getting done, and in other news, it's been a good week for dairy farmers. Fonterra lifted its farm gate forecast milk price for this season by 30 cents to a new midpoint of $7.80 a kilogram of milk solids. That's thanks to rising global dairy trade prices and stronger demand from the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Federated Farmers Dairy spokesperson Richard McIntyre says it means many farmers will now break even this season. This is great news for um, for Fonterra, and it will also put pressure on um, on other processes to follow suit. Um, from a dairy farmer's point of view, like you know, Fonterra farmers will be walking around with an extra spring in their step this morning um, after getting that news. You know, we'll remember back to the the dark days of August during calving when the milk price just kept on dropping, and farmers were scrambling to try and manage cash flows and try and find enough money to pay their bills um, throughout the year. So, you know, this is obviously quite a significant a significant recovery, which will take a lot of pressure off. Richard McIntyre says the lift in forecast shows promising signs for next season as well. The dairy season runs through till the end of May, and Fonterra will announce the final price it will pay to farmers in September. And it's been a bumper summer for fruit and veg. It has. Superb is the word being used to describe the quality and volumes of New Zealand-grown fresh fruit and vegetables this summer. Jerry Prendergast from United Fresh says it's peak melon season at the moment and the quality's really good. They're growing outdoors in New Zealand. They're growing in the perfect conditions at this time of the year, weather conditions. For melons, it has been superb. Melons love dry weather. They don't like having any water at all. So the drier it is for melons, the better. And if we think and cast our minds back to this time last year, with the kind of wet conditions, it was an absolute disaster with melons because you constantly had rain coming through affecting the issue. He says Central Otago has had a great stone fruit season and the Kumara harvest is now underway in Northland, which is showing a lot of promise after a disastrous season last year due to Cyclone Gabriel. And Southern Field Days is back and bigger than ever. It's a record number of exhibitors this year. That's right. After a four-year hiatus due to COVID cancellations, the three-day event kicked off in Gore on Wednesday. Southern Field Days chairman Steve Henderson says there are more than 800 exhibits on display with lots of new technology and innovation. I think it's reasonably significant this year, the fact that we can run it. Um, It's a full house and it just gets exhibitors back, the public back through the gates 
and a lot of the public that you talk to is um, reasonably, you know, they've, they've almost been disconnected for a while, and then Southern Field Days does bring them back. They almost talk to their neighbours at the Southern Field Days, so a lot of guys and girls haven't caught up with a lot of people for a lot of times, and I think that's that's going to be the biggest thing that comes out of these field days, along with people catching up with exhibitors and actually buying and purchasing, but it's more of the network and catch up these field days. Steve Henderson says there's all the usual events like tractor pulling and fencing and there were big celebrations for National Lamb Day on Thursday. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. This year on Country Life we'll occasionally be chatting with farmers around the world and today we're heading to Germany, about 30 kilometres south of Berlin. You may have heard about the many protests by farmers taking place around Europe because they fear the loss of tax breaks and subsidies amid increasing costs, red tape and regulations to deal with climate change. The farmers have had some success and forced country governments and the European Union to ease up in some areas. Our guest, who's a member of the Global Farmer Network, joined the protests and last month rode in a farm tractor to Berlin's famous Brandenburg Gate. Hello, my name is Jana Gebert. I live in Brandenburg, former East Germany. I'm a farmer on a big farm, for Germany a big farm, <laughs> 4,000 hectares uh, in total. Uh, 1,100 hectares is uh, grassland. We have 970 dairy cows uh, uh, plus corresponding offspring. In one year, um, we have 10 million uh, kilograms of, of uh, milk. We have a very diverse crop rotation, uh, 12, 13 crops. And um, we are not just a farm. <laughs> we have um, garage, we have a petrol station, we have a small hotel. So it's a very important thing for the rural area. Um, all in all, we have 120 employees. And our farm is a cooperative farm. And uh, they wanted me to manage the dairy part. Now, Jana, let's talk about the protests, because these have been happening all around Europe. Tell me what you did as part of the protests. So my farm, um, we went by tractor to Berlin and uh, some others of our farm went by train to Berlin. We wanted to, to be heard. We wanted to be seen with other farmers. Enough is enough because the last decisions would be so hard that we fear that a lot of farmers have to quit. You're referring to decisions around the government scrapping the rebates on agricultural diesel. Yes, but it's not the only thing. They also wanted to have taxes for every machine you need in, in agriculture on a farm. Until now, farmers don't have to pay this kind of tax. And all in all, it would be a billion dollar that the farmers have to pay more. The main problem is that in the years before, where more and more restriction, lower subsidies. And so it was like Germany, we say it was the, the drop <laughs> too much. <laughs> Lots of farmers work and work and they don't have enough money to, to, to live from farming. So they have another job. And for us, it would be um, a decision if we have to reduce uh, the employees uh, or we um, have impacts on our ecology uh, way of farming because the economy uh, is so hard. I understand the government has made some concessions, but this is not the only thing that you're worried about. 
There's also the European Union policies that are also concerning you. Yes, um, every five years we get a new so-called common agriculture policy that the rule for the next five years. And in former years, we got subsidies for being a farmer. It, it was a little bit different uh, from country to country, but the, the aim was producing food <laughs> for the for the people so that the cost for the people when they want to buy food was uh, low. Now that they uh, put more and more money into nature protection uh, measures, so you have to do lots more for getting the subsidies and it's not easy to reach all the aims that they want to have. So we have to produce less food and so we get less money <laughs> because we are a very diverse farm. We can manage it, but there are some farmers who struggle with the programs and it's not because they don't want to do something for the environment. It is because sometimes they cannot understand and sometimes it is like someone decided something, but he is not a farmer and he cannot know that the thing that he wants us to do is not possible to do, does not really work for the farmers. And in our opinion, it often does not fit in the world because we have floods everywhere, we have droughts everywhere, and then we... Um, have to uh, reduce our production. So we have the gap for the Europe decisions and then we have Germany's government adding restrictions or uh, want to have more taxes and, and so on. And so it is very, very hard um, and we uh, lose our ability to compete. What has been the reaction from the public to the protests? Because blockading roads and, and even the airport in some countries surely must be inconveniencing people. Are they on your side? Uh, when we start the protest, we were a little bit concerned about the public. And I must say that the public is very supporting. They understand us and they know that, especially in Germany, the farmers are very, very um, more reserved than in other countries like uh, in France or Netherlands. Uh, they know that we are very uh, capable of suffering, so that when we say we have to protest, they support us. For example, the truck drivers come to the protest, bakers come to the protest, more and more uh, professions. <laughs> Just to, to finish, uh, what's next? Well, um, I must say the politicians heard us. <laughs> they changed the decisions of uh, December, not in total, but uh, they um, wanted to talk with the uh, farmers, uh, with the associations. And that is uh, what I always say. The protests were very or are very important to be visible, but we only can solve the problem when we talk to each other, when we go in discussion. That's what happens now. So the next month will uh, decide if we uh, find a good way. So um, I hope that the chaos uh, was uh, like, a, like a storm that we needed and now we find solutions because it is uh, important uh, to have measures for increasing biodiversity or for uh, produce uh, on a climate friendly way, but it must be possible <laughs> and our income has to uh, be uh, a better one. Jana Gerbert, who runs a dairy farm about 30 kilometres south of Berlin. 
And next we're heading to Coromandel with RNZ Concerts' Brian Crump to meet a man who farms to the beat of his own drum. I'll let Brian pick up the story. So here I am, recorded a little earlier, driving my rental car down a narrow gravel road, an access way to a farm near Thames. Not the uh, sort of place you'd expect the host of a classical music show to be driving to. I could be going to do an interview on RNZ National's Country Life. Maybe this will be a Country Life interview. But the main purpose of this journey for me is musical. I'm coming out to visit Jeremy Fitzsimons, percussionist who until recently was based in Wellington and when he's making music, he sounds like this. But when he's down on the farm, the sounds that surround him sound like this. Well, and Jeremy, um, they're a bit um, shaggier these sheep than, than I expected. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a variety of um, watches that are, um, that are self-shedding. So uh, the wool grows to a certain length and then it just falls out in clumps. So uh, you can see some of them look almost newly shorn, just with a couple of tufts on their back, yep. and some of them looking very woolly, but with a couple of bare spots here and there and everything in between. I mean, it's amazing when it does fall off, it does look like there's this one over here which has got tuft on its rump. Yeah. It's like it's trying to be a punk. It's almost like it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know what it is? So. It's 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 a mullet. But it's <laughs> a mullet out of its backside. Yeah, rather than over its head. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, or her probably. Yeah. I'm guessing yeah. it's a mama. Yeah. Yeah, these are the ewes in here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and their the lambs. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're not um not photogenic so much. <laughs> you wouldn't put them in a show for <laughs> Best cheap. <laughs> no, no, not down to the AMP. No. Unless there's a new category for these Wiltshires. <laughs> yeah, you know. that's right. The best self-shorn sheep. Yeah. Cool. So, um, Jeremy, why did um, a musician move to the country? Well, we're sort of all, always on the cards since um, my mum, Jeanette, bought this place. Uh, it's just such a beautiful place to be. And... Um, I've come up and done a lot of work here over the years and uh, invested a lot of myself in the place. And You didn't grow up on this farm, did you? No, no. Well, uh, you grew up, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Auckland, uh, although we had a weekend farm then as well. Um, well it was a, there was a cooperative farm up in the Dome Valley, up north of um, Walkwith, that uh, there were ten families put together and we... Um, we bought a farm up there, so I, I did grow up sort of being a weekend farmer up there. I'm still very new to the whole, I wouldn't, wouldn't call myself a farmer now, I'm still learning the ropes very much. You're working on the attire though, Jeremy, I might have to take <laughs> a to picture of you later on. But, uh, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've yeah. got boots and yeah, yeah. The, the shirt looks pretty farmery. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, trying to, but yeah, no, just, you can see it's such a beautiful place to be and... Uh, away from it all and I can still I figured I can still do my music most of the time 
I spend doing music is actually just by myself in the practice room. So you can be anywhere for that. And I've built my own studio here so I can practice here in the afternoons and do farm work in the mornings and uh, living, the, living the dream. Shall we um, <laughs> go down and check out the studio? Sure. How long have you been up here now? We just moved you up in, the gym moved in, up in from January. So. Yeah, so just, just the beginning of this year. So, was it nine months or something? Was it always your plan? Yes, yes. We moved it forward a, a bit uh, because Harry was by himself up here. Uh, after mum died, your, after yeah. mum died three years ago. And we were going to come up once the kids left school. Um, but Izzy's got another couple of years to go at high school. But she's been uh, fitting in really well, with um, made new friends and, and seems to be enjoying it here. She's loving her little cabin that I built her, she, where she lives. Is she a musician? Um, yes, yes, she's, well, she's been taking singing lessons for a while and um, we tried her on violin for a while and it definitely wasn't her instrument. But she's been having guitar lessons this year and she's recently just taken up bass and is loving that and um, playing in a band at school playing oh, bass and singing in a band at school so. dad and daughter that's the whole rhythm section yeah, of a band that's right and what about your partner sarah i mean this is yeah, a well, this she... is a big jump from uh, wellington to here that's right that's right well she's a dance teacher and pilates teacher and um she bought the thames hauraki um, ballet theater which is now the Tim's Hauraki Dance Theatre um, and took that over with about six or seven students in it and has now brought it up to about 70 I think, 75 students so she's done amazingly well this year. She spent, splits her time between Ngatia and uh, Tim's and does adult classes, um, she's an adult ballet class and an adult contemporary class. Which, um, probably the core demographic here in Thames. Has it been a steep learning curve for you, doing this farming oh, stuff? farming stuff, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm still at the stage where I just do what I'm told. Um, <laughs> just trying to learn the ropes, and um, Harry's a wealth of knowledge. He's not able to do so much physical stuff on the farm now, but um, we can rack his brain and get him to sort of show us what to do and how to do it. And up here, we've got the olive grove. We've got a couple of pressings off that this year. Lots of fun. And our other big crop down here is the chestnuts. So in March we spend... Those trees that are looking gaunt and bare at the moment. Yeah, you can see some of them are just starting to get leaves. Oh, yes. In March, for about a month, we just... Everyone on the farm is picking up chestnuts and sorting chestnuts and living and breathing chestnuts all day. Do you get sick of chestnuts? We do. <laughs> but... Um, only for a little while, and then, uh, and then um, you know, kind of look forward to it for a little bit next year. You're listening to Once Was a Wellingtonian-based percussionist, Jeremy Fitzsimons, now down on the farm in the Koairanga Valley near Thames, speaking with me, Brian Crump, and we're walking down his farm access track to his music practice studio. We should be there in the time it takes for Jeremy to finish this little etude by Gareth Farr.
Did you build this? Yep, yep, built this from scratch. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit of a learning curve for me. I hadn't really done any construction before much, uh, apart from the odd shed. That's so satisfying. I mean, compared to, you spend, a, you spend a day building and you can step back and go, wow, look, I've made that today. You spend a day practicing and no one knows. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, uh, and you can, well, you can perform a concert and you can get the adulation. Oh yeah, sure. And but, that's, that's a big buzz, but then but it's, it's gone. A, that's, that's right, and it's a much longer time frame too. You, you, you don't really see, you don't have something to show at the end of a day's practice. Particularly, you know you've done a bit better, but yeah, it's a much, much longer process. I found the, the building very rewarding in that way. And here we Just are in your practice room. How, how, how much would you practice a day, given you've got all these other things you need to do? Yeah, um, oh, it depends. I mean, if I've, if I've got a really big thing coming up, I'll devote more time to practicing and sort of do, do longer days. But generally, um, if I spend the morning on the farm, I'll do about three hours practice in the afternoon and then it's time to go feed the chickens and uh, get the firewood in light the wood stove to cook on wood stove yeah yeah well we're all off grid here so um we generate our own power and it's not really enough to uh have electric cooking and uh we've got a couple of gas uh gas hobs gas, gas elements in the in the kitchen just for you know cooking cooking your eggs in the morning or boiling it so um, yeah, I've got a, a slight. I've got a bigger solar supply system here for my studio than uh, than we do for the old one for the house. So I can run a few more things off this one. So. I thought you were acoustic, Jeremy. Oh well, yes. Although when I'm working on the Pink Floyd Experience stuff, that's all electronic. So I have the synths set up and the ele electronic drum pads and the laptop and all that running. Pink that. Floyd Experience. Yeah, yeah. Pink Floyd tribute show. I've been doing that since. Uh, 2011, uh, 12... Uh, really? Yeah, 12 years now. And um, So that's your stadium rock? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I play a bit of keyboards and a bit of percussion and um, do all the sound effects for that. There's a lot of sound effects in Pink Floyd experience. Did you have big drum music. solos? Um, I can't He's a drummer as well, but right. I, I get to do the rototom solo at the beginning of time, which is uh, kind of fun. What did you say? Rototom the solo. The rototom. At the beginning of time... From Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, so is that song. after you get the, you have all the clocks? There's all the clocks. And then there's a kind of acoustic. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I would say because I'm uneducated when it comes to percussion, bongo kind of sounding drum. That's right, but they're actually pitched. see four instruments maybe more i mean probably there's uh, obviously lots more uh, than that but if you look up on the walls there okay. they've got shelves full of full of gear um, so what's the system. you've got the you got, got the drum set set up at the moment what are you working on is that is that for pink floyd or no that... this is uh, so we've got a different uh, for pink floyd experience there's a there's another drummer who who does all the drum set stuff so i'm really just on percussion for that um but no this um i'm playing with success in november for their uh, 30th anniversary yeah. concert. That's how I found out about you, Jim. Yeah, that's right. But you're up here. Yeah. What are you doing with them? 
So we're doing a new piece by Gareth, uh, just written for this um, this concert with Saxes called Vessel of Song, and that's um, I get to play Dara Booker in that or Dumbek, which is the hourglass drum here, one that looks like a stool. Well, uh, yes, yes, just what well, I didn't or... sit on that. <laughs> Probably get rather upset with me. Yeah, and um, I'm not really a Dumbek player, um, but. As a percussionist, you just have to pick up new instruments and learn them the best you can. So um, it's called a dumbek because it's onomatopoeic. You've got the dum and bek, or dum tuck. Um, Yeah, that piece of Gareth's that we're, we're playing, and then uh, this piece, Rom in Space, by um, John Sarthus, uh, which is really exciting. That's for drum set and saxophone quartet. I haven't got it up to speed yet, but uh, something goes something like this. So. Former Wellington percussionist Jeremy Fitzsimons, now based in the Koa Iranga Valley near Thames, doing a drumming demonstration for RNZ concert host Brian Crump. And in case you were wondering, Jeremy is the son of the late Jeanette Fitzsimons, former co-leader of the Green Party who lived on the farm until her death in 2020. Her former partner Harry still lives there. Kia my name is Quinn Morgan. I'm the Ahu Whenua, a young Māori farmer of the year for 2021. And you're listening to Country Life on RNZ National. Now we're heading to northeastern Marlborough with Cosmo Kentish Barnes. He's with Hazley MacDonald from Tepa Wines. We're down here at the, the White O Bar. Uh, some will call it the White O Bar. And where we are today is sitting outside the original White O Bar school uh, where my father went uh, as a young kid. And it closed down, look, I can't remember when it closed down, but it closed down some time ago and it remains our marae and our, I guess our community hub for this area and for those families that are from here. Yes, and you were saying just before that you used to have a lot of family members that lived down this road. Yeah, this this whole road was just once full of all my extended family uh, and my close family. Right next door to where we are was where my grandfather lived and farmed all this area and that's where he brought up his 21 children. Uh, right here and so you know they, they all lived and breathed the wide Opa and yeah this is where we are and where we farm today. And your ancestors actually landed their walker not too far from here? Yeah right at the wide Bar there um, they landed there you know over 800 years ago and walked up the beach and walked into paradise so yeah, it's a pretty special place. Mm. Now we're looking at some farmland in front of us. Uh, what is the soil like here? So where we are now, is uh, the soil is very rich, silty, loamy soils. And, you know, as a kid growing up, we used to plant, you know, multiple acres of, of potatoes and, and uh, cereal crops and vegetable crops, corn and peas, and we could grow them without the assistance of irrigation. It was all naturally done, uh, as well as... We, we never used fertilisers growing up. The soil's so so good here, and out there today is uh, we're making a bit of hay today. 
So we've still you know, got our traditional farming practices going, uh, raising beef and, and making hay and, and various other crops that we still put in alongside our vineyard operation. Yeah, we can see that vineyards beyond the paddocks and beyond them are the bush-clad mountains. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I guess, looking north to the Richmond Ranges, so very lush bush over there, bit of forestry, but, you know, on, on the valley floor here, 20 years ago, that was just all farmland, and as time's gone on in the wine industry, as people found out, these were the better soils to be in uh, for Sauvignon Blanc, and now, as you can see, the big green carpet is, is spreading across the plains, so it there's, is. there's very little land in Marlborough that's not got vines in it. Mm. What was your childhood like here? At the time, you know, like every kid, I guess, you know, you thought you had the hardest childhood. But when we look back now, we had the best childhood. And um, we had all our cousins up and down this road. We worked every day after school on the farm. If it was digging potatoes, you know, dairy, beef, there was always a job. And um, at that time, you know, we didn't, we, we was thought we were... Uh, our hands were tied behind our backs, but you know, I think we realised that it was, it was the making of a lot of us. Mm. Yeah. So your folks had a dairy farm, and then did they switch to growing potatoes? Uh, so my my grandfather, um, you know, he did a mixture of dairy farming and growing potatoes, and then my father and uh, his brothers sort of slowly took over the business back in the seventies, I guess, and they were growing potatoes for the local co-op at the time. Um, my father married my mum and her family owned a few supermarkets in town and so my dad was one of the ones that sort of broke the mould and started selling direct into supermarkets instead of going through the co-op and we made anywhere from 3 kilo bags to 20 kilo bags but then my dad and his brother 100 metres from us here converted an old dairy shed that was my grandfather's dairy shed and that's when they started to process the potatoes into French fries and then we started selling those French fries to local fish and chip shops here in town as well as restaurants and then that business just grew and grew and grew and where we were supplying fresh French fries as, as far as down as Christchurch and probably as far north as up to Topol. What were the French fries called? McDonald fries. It was a really good business. They sold it because I think they just had had enough of that that side of the business, so we sold the business, but we kept, uh, we didn't sell the, the land. You kept the land. We kept the land, and, you know, it was back to traditional farming, so we went back into dairy then. Uh, we started out milking another 250 cows, but that wasn't good enough, you know, there was two families to feed at that stage, and, and so we took the numbers the following year, I think it was up to 600, and then the following year up to 800, and so we were milking 800-odd cows in the sort of late 90s. Mm. And then you went overseas? Yeah, went away to the USA and you know went over there for a six month working holiday ended up staying a a lot longer and... What were you doing over there? Went over and I was driving trucks interstate did that for a bit of a a way to to see the the country and and, uh, really enjoyed it so I came home in uh, the end of 2002 Uh, my dad wanted us home to come back onto the farm and to be fair I didn't want to be a dairy farmer for the rest of my life and we agreed to put a few vineyards in and uh, 2003 we planted our very first vineyards Uh, we put about 150 acres in and then the following year we stuck another 150 acres in and then the following year after that we put about another 100 acres in 
but everyone used to say you couldn't grow vineyards east of the railway line, State Highway 1. Um, what everyone sort of learned is that that's become the most sought after land for vineyards that everyone wants today. So, Did you know much about grapes or vineyards when you first started planting? Nothing. Nothing. We were fortunate enough to work with some really good people in the early parts who gave us a lot of guidance and and we still made mistakes with that. I think what we learnt was we went back to the basics on how to grow our crops. We, we learnt that you do need a bit of water with them because we, we didn't have irrigation in. We learnt that it's all about timing on how to interfere. If you see something in the vineyard, you, you normally, if you, if you react, then you're going to have more of a problem. But if you're proactive around what you're doing, then, then you, you don't see no issues throughout the growing season. So we were probably growing for five or six different wineries then. So you were selling the grapes? Selling the grapes only. Uh, at the same time, I built quite a large contracting business alongside of that in our four vineyards. So we learned how to build our own vineyards. We built all our own. And then we were out building other people's vineyards and we were harvesting all over Marlborough. Well, um, let's head on down the road to your home vineyard and check out the grapes. Let's do it. We are driving past lots of your vines now. What, What's growing in this vineyard here? These ones right here is our very first plantings. And so uh, all Sauvignon Blanc. So many years ago you were sticking those posts in the ground, fixing those wires up, planting the grapes. Yep, we did the lot. Uh, irrigation in the ground, so I know where everything is down here. Yep. Every pot, every post. Done it all, yep myself and my father and my brother and yeah family it was what we did well let's um stop here we've come to the yard and go and have a look at these vines here that um are probably what three three or four weeks off being harvested yep yep they're uh i'd say uh, this block is going for uh, low alcohol wines that we will make this year for customers in the uk so probably harvest around the, the 16th of march You've got quite a few buildings here, and in particular one huge shed. Is that where you maintain all the gear? It houses all our machinery. We've got a few harvesters in there and sprayers and a couple of mechanics are always uh, you know, fixing gear. And yeah. So, yeah, it's really important, and we're surrounded by the original sheds here. The one behind us uh, over here used to be our shearing shed growing up, and now it, we've put it into a smoko shed, lunch room for the for the guys and that uh, building next to the grain silos in the early days was my office. Now the rows here are about two metres high and between the vines here is a healthy bed of cover crops. Yeah, right now we plant alternative species in there, you know, peas, beans, oats, clovers, mm. just the one that helps free up the soil 
and two, it helps invigorate root growth for the vines and so we've noticed massive changes by doing that. We don't have the beautiful bowling green vineyards that we used to have where it was just all grass. We've gone away from that. We've found that that's not very good for vineyards and so now with the peas, beans, oats we let them get high, we crimp roll it down and then we mulch it back into the soil. You've got to be able to give, give back to the vineyard so that vines will give back to you so works well. And the roots are looking old and gnarly. Yeah, well, these vines are just over 20 years old now, 20, 21 years old. You know, the life expectancy of, of Sauvignon vines is probably somewhere between 25 and 30 years. Oh. Uh, we're starting to see quite a bit of replanting going on in Melbourne now, given that there's some age on vines and, you know, that they do not crop as much as they get older. They start to get a little bit of disease pressure or trunk disease, and so... I think what people are sort of finding out is that it's best to replant. Um, we pull all this out. We will do it at some stage, and hopefully that'll be the kids' problem to deal with, not mine. So uh, they're still a bit young, but um, time they sort of get ready, and if they come in, they'll be doing the replanting. Hopefully the paying too. <laughs> How many kids have you got? Five kids, yeah. Three girls, two boys. Are they interested in what you're doing here with the vineyard and on the farm? Yeah, 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 certainly interested, but Julie and I, we push them to get their education. So we've got my oldest now is at university, and the rest are still coming through school. And my oldest son, he's certainly taken an interest in the vineyards and, and really loves it, and he's had to go back to school, and he, he wants to be out here, but uh, <laughs> understands he needs to get an education. This is a, you know, it's a different business now, and hopefully they come in and and take over one day and take this business to a different level than what than what we've achieved. And I, I sort of went to school to eat lunch and annoy a few teachers, so I didn't last too long. So uh, hopefully those kids will do a bit better than what I did. How would you describe some of the wines that you produce here? What makes your wines special? I think um, what is good here is you get those really big thyle flavours coming through in the lower YRL, and they're what the customer is after. I wouldn't say we're any more special than everyone else, but I think that the benefits of down here is that we have virtually zero frost risk. We have really good water source here. There's big aquifers under us. I mean, the whole valley comes towards us. Uh, as you look west, the elevation is really high. Mm. And so if you can imagine all the water from way up in the lakes, down underneath the ground, it all comes to us. What goes past us goes to sea. And, you know, we're very lucky to be to be here. Where does the Tipa name come from? That's a good question. So when I first was thinking about doing my own brand and sitting around as a family trying to come up with names and we had all sorts <laughs> of names and it just sort of clicked and went, well, let's name it after home. This area is known as the Pa. And so we, we are down the par, uh, I mean, te in Māori language is the, so it's named after home, te pa. And so there's a, a Google image on the label that sort of outlines the, the different areas of the par. You'll see there's a, a, in the background of that label, there's like a black line that faintly runs through, that's represent the river that's just over here, which is the, the Waido River, which is the lifeline of Marlborough. And then on the front, you'll see it looks like a fish hook. And it has a, you know, a dual meaning. It looks like the figure eight 
for the 800 years of our family being here, but also because we're next to the, the sea. Fishing, seafood is a big yes. part of our daily diet, and so it's the represent that. It was actually really simple at the end of the day. Yeah. And you are also one of the founding members of the Tuku Māori Winemakers Collective. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, well, I guess in, in this industry here, there's very few Māori owners, Māori winemakers. And, and so that was a collective where a few of us got together and said, you know, we need to tell a story of who we are, what we do. And, you know, Māori in general have a sense of we like to do things together and we do things probably slightly different and and we do that with food and, and so those commonalities are really good they're good to bounce ideas off and we just share things that we do in the vineyards as well as our, our brand stories our, our culture and so that's sort of how we got born there's, there's many winemaking collectives here but this is a Māori version and it's to showcase not only to our peers, but uh, to the world that we're here. Indigenous uh, are in with everyone else, and yeah, come and come and experience it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, shall we head down to the river mouth where your ancestors first landed? Yeah, yeah. So we refer to that as Tapukahiwi, and that's uh, you know where the first migration of our people arrived. And yeah, we can go there now and uh, show you what's what's there. Is your family still involved in in the vineyard? Just recently, my mum and dad have moved out. Uh, they've finally retired, and we've we've taken over the whole lot. Uh, my brother that was with me, he moved into Australia twelve odd years ago, and and I have two sisters that are still here, but mm. not involved in the business. Why have we stopped here, Hazley? Ah, uh, well, this is to just just to show you know where the river runs out to sea, being the Wairo Bar, uh, but it's also significant to us uh, as, as Māori and as as local Māori here. Uh, this is the land I spoke about before, what we call Tapukahiwi. So the first landing of Māori to arrive here uh, in the Wairo came here into what we call now Cloudy Bay up onto the beach and lived here. So, uh, you know, that was a, a very big par site over there. Also, uh, in the latter years, my last name's MacDonald, uh, Francis MacDonald, that uh, came here uh, on these shores. Um, there used to be quite a community, and so he built, uh, there used to be a pub uh, right here on the bar. And so he, he had that until a big flood came in one day and washed it away. Is that a protected site? Yes, it is. It is under protection. Uh, at the moment, it's under the Department of Conservation, and we are trying to get that back as an iwi under our control to look after it better than what's been currently going on. Mm. So that that's a bit of an uphill battle for us at the moment with the department, but uh, hopefully one day they'll see the light and, and uh, that'll come back to uh, the original owners. What a spectacular spot here. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, as you can see, you know, people are fishing here. They'll be catching kawai and, and, and rig fish and, and whatever else jumps on the hook. And, and it's, 
you know, it's quite a, a lovely area. I mean, we've grown up fishing here, white baiting, and you know, a big part of the community come down here to, to get a feed of fish. There are some people searching for shellfish as well because it's a low tide. And this really is the point where your ancestors came down into the river from the sea. It is. If you can imagine them arriving here all those years ago and, and what, a, what a place to, to arrive to. I mean, the, all the bounties of the sea, um, the harbour, cockles and scallops and everything used to be in here and some of it still is. Uh, to the, the massive Wairo Lagoon in the back there where they had untold amounts of uh, bird life and they used to hunt moa just over here, run them down off the hills and down this boulder bank and, you know, sort of those moas years ago. Also had, you know, the harst eagle here, the biggest eagle in the world. Uh, through some of the digs that were done over the other side there, we found the remains in a big hangi pit of the harst eagle, which, uh, you know, there's a replica in Te Papa Museum as to how big those things really were. And also across there, there's an important archaeological site that contains a burial ground. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of our people were buried over there. You know, a few decades ago, some... Uh, I don't know what you call them, scientists, bloody come explorers were looking for artefacts over there and it really upset our family and um, some, some promises were made not to go near the graves and unbeknown to us they were in there and they took a heap of them out of their, out of their resting place and that was yeah, pretty, uh, pretty bad and so they took them away, they were, they were sold off, they were put into museums. I guess some goods come out of it, some DNA testing was done on those, some of those bones and DNA testing on, on us that are still living here today and it just shows how far back we go and how we're related to this area and where we've come from through the Pacific. So there's some good things come out of it, but you know those that were ahead of my time fought for the return of those remains, those those of our people to be brought back here in uh, 2010 we repatriated 55 of them that Canary Museum had in storage and reburied them as close as we can to where they were taken from given the information that we had and so that was really, really good but you know some of these museums have still got a lot of our people that they are not releasing yet. It's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle and, and uh, one day they'll do the right thing and return those people to us to, to be put back in their rightful place. Hazley MacDonald from Te Pa Wines talking to Cosmo at the Wairo Bar or Te Pokohiwi Okupe in Marlborough. You can go to our webpage for more info on stories you've heard today and see photos of the people behind the voices. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife or just type RNZ Country Life into your browser. Well, koina mō tēnei wā. That's it for now. If you missed anything, you can listen again, and you can delve into our archives for loads more stories about rural New Zealand and its people. You can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast, and you can find it on pretty much any podcast platform. Hey, tērā wiki, hei kona rā. Until next week, goodbye. See ya.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.